Lance your ankles, you pus-filled prendergrests. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I'm recording this one in a hotel room, so apologies if the sound is a little bit off. We'll just do a quick sound check here. Postman, 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 postman. God bless, God bless. Postman, postman. As you can see, it's a little bit echoey. So, yeah. Here's the crack. I'm recording this in a hotel. I've got a special podcast for you this week. Um, my book of short stories, Boulevard Wren, has been in shops since November 1st. That's two or three days ago. I am very happy to say, lads, it is now number one in the Irish book charts. And thank you so much to everyone who went out and got it. And thank you to everyone who's given me lovely messages over the weekend saying that they're enjoying it so far. All right. It's still in the shops. Um, if you want to get it I I was on the Late Late Show there on Friday night which is like I'm 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 mainly promoting the book through this podcast and through social media and I'm only doing the the traditional media stuff I'm only doing the ones that I that I kind of want to do so I did a piece with the Irish Times with Patrick Frayne who's a class journalist and that was great great crack and then the other main one I'm doing that I did is the Late Late Show the Late Late Show is, if you don't know, if you're not from Ireland, it's like this Irish institution. It's it's the longest running TV show, live uh, television chat show in the world. It's been on TV since the early 60s. Hasn't stopped being on Friday nights. It's this, like, 20 years ago, it was almost as important as, like, Sunday fucking mass. Not 20, more 30 or 40, like, Sunday mass in Ireland. Like, the big issues of Ireland were spoken about on the Late Late Show on Friday nights. Like, the Magdalene Laundry scandal broke out on the Late Late and it created our national discourse, really. What, since I was on it there on Friday, and this is the... Because I'd planned on saying to you, I'm going to be on the Late Late and I want to mention a little bit about how important the Late Late is to Irish culture, specifically in the... 60s, 70s and 80s. Gabe Byrne, who presented it for all those years, died yesterday. Um, And it's the closest thing in Ireland you get to, like, royalty dying or something, you know? He was, like, kind of Ireland's granddad or something. It's this strange kind of behemoth figure within Irish broadcasting who was at the helm of so much important discourse throughout the the years um few things I wouldn't agree with Gay Byrne with but there you go but the man the man just died I'd never met Gay Byrne that's the thing in all my time working in television I'd never actually gotten to meet Gay Byrne because I think he, he retired after I started working on TV not retired but he kind of he chilled out from it a bit you know so I wouldn't have had a chance to kind of meet him so I'd never met Gay Byrne in my professional career. And then yesterday I got a, a mail from someone I hadn't spoken to in years, a lad I was back in school with, wanting to confirm a story because he remembered it and he wanted to ask me if, if he remembered it correctly. I'd forgotten about it completely. But apparently, yes, I did meet Gay Byrne. In fifth year, when I was in school, we had a class trip up, up to RTE and... The bus obviously stopped in in a pub or somewhere so we could all take a piss before we went to Dublin. I went into the toilet and bought flavoured condoms. 
I was about fucking 14 or 15 or whatever age, you know. And so I, I had these flavoured condoms. I don't know why, I was probably just showing off or trying to make people laugh. So I was sucking and chewing flavoured condoms the whole time that I was in RTE on the school trip. And Gabe Byrne said hello to us, said the hello to this group of children. Now, obviously that was what he did whenever a group of children arrived. But I was there chewing flavoured condoms and apparently he gave out to me for chewing flavoured condoms in Carson. And I, I, I vaguely recollect it. Uh, being chastised by Gay Byrne for chewing flavoured condoms. And so that's, I did get to meet fucking Gay Byrne. So rest in peace, Gay Byrne. So I was on the Late Late Show talking to Ryan Tuberty, who's the new host. And I don't know, the Late Late is weird. Like, I can't just promote the book through this podcast and through social media because I'm kind of only reaching like young people as such but the thing with the late late and it shows you the the duplicity in how media is consumed in Ireland when I'm speaking to people on a podcast or social media these are people who like like you you're after seeking out this content you've made a choice to say I'm listening to this podcast today with traditional media like the newspaper and the TV or the late late it's different. These people aren't really seeking out their content. It's just they're flicking on the TV on a Friday night. So it can be quite invasive. You land in someone's living room. So as a result of that, then you get kind of reactionary comments. And I, like, so I had 15 minutes. You have to kind of sum things up really quickly. It's, it's, it's an interview, but it isn't and it isn't. It's not an interview in, in that it's a free-form conversation. It's more... You go on and you, you you speak about your points, but you try and keep them concise so you can cover as much as possible in 15 minutes. So I spoke about... I was asked basically a state of the nation question because the Late Late Show are aware that I toured this podcast all around Ireland and people ask me questions. So I have an idea about what's bothering people in Ireland who come to my podcasts. So I said, look, in rural communities, a lot of the questions I get asked about are mental health how do I speak to my friend about this in Dublin huge issue that I'm finding is people in their fucking 20s and 30s who have do- feel they've done everything right they've got a good leave insert they've got went to college got a good job they're now in a good job getting good pay yet they can't really afford to live in Dublin they can afford to live in Dublin if they want they can afford to, to rent but most of them are moving back with their parents because it's like wh- why would I live in a box room with eight people uh, developing a lung complaint from mould why would I do that I, I should be living at home with my ma where at least I have a quality of life but the mental health effects that this is having on an entire fucking Irish generation of like I said people in their 20s and 30s who feel as if they've done everything right but now they're still living with their parents and what that does to these people's sense of identity, their sense of self, their sense of autonomy and their self-esteem. And that's worrying. So I spoke about that and then I spoke about climate change. So I've kind of just been getting loads of angry, negative comments all weekend because I went on the late late, which is fine, right? If it's just that man with a plastic bag is a fool or... I disagree with... He's a lefty fucking idiot. I disagree with him. That's grand. That's par for the course. You don't go on the late, late and not expect to get critique. That's fine. Absolutely grand. All part of the game. But 
what I don't like is you, you just uh, you get it. Uh, you get negative comments from really extreme right wing accounts, and that's kind of more freaky because they're what they're saying isn't critique. It's much more aggressive and irrational. There's people in Ireland who genuinely believe that Blind Boy isn't real, but instead, I am like a puppet that was created by this international left-wing cabal of shady politicians and business people and that I'm rolled out onto the late, late the national broadcaster every two years as this theatrical puppet in order to convince and fool and trick the Irish people into Marxism and there's people who truly truly believe that and they truly believe that I'm rolled out to, to fool the Irish people into believing in the quote-unquote climate change myth so I've been getting a lot of that shit all weekend too and that's a little bit more unsettling um, but anyway here's the crack of a special podcast for you this week because I'm so there's a thing in Ireland called Science Week right and Science Week is it's it's like a, a thing that happens every year in Ireland to, to democratise and educate everyone in Ireland on science and what's happening in science and to bridge the gap between kind of scientists and everyone else because science kind of like everything science uh, along with academia along with another a lot of things sometimes they can feel inaccessible to myself or yourself because it's an area where you have experts and you can feel like oh this isn't for me this is too uh, complicated for me to understand so naturally uh, sometimes you can disengage so science week is about it's about democratizing science and science is one of those things that should be democratized because it's not that complicated really to understand it just if, if the expert is able to speak about it in the language of the receiver then it becomes democratized basically so science week is about democratizing science this year science week is the focus of Science Week 2019 is climate activism. Uh, climate action and climate activism and all things climate. So Science Week got on to me and said, look, would you like to interview some experts who are working within the area of climate uh, for Science Week? And I'm like, yes, please, absolutely, I would love that. So that's what I'm doing this week. I have, I sat down for a chat with two scientists, Jerry Murphy and Claire Watson. And we spoke about biofuels, which is something I knew very little about, but it's incredibly interesting. And it's when when I speak about climate change, I try and I prefer to speak about action and positivity and meaning and what we can do and what we can how can how we can react to it in a proactive way rather than apathy or fear. That's what I like to speak about. So learning about biofuels was fantastic because it's just to sum it up in the near future, how we're, if we want to have a carbon neutral way of consuming with electricity and power, you know, electricity is going to come from multiple sources. So you're going to have wind, solar, all this different crack. And then what the fuck is that noise? 
right? Someone in the next hotel room is trying to insert a plug into the wall and the vibrations of this are now interfering directly through the table into my podcast. So we'll just, we'll just deal with it. We'll just cope with it. So, look, uh, electricity of the future is going to come from multiple sources, but one source I wasn't aware of that's kind of carbon, carbon neutral, in fact, some say it's carbon negative, is biofuels. Uh, so that's what we're going to speak about here on this podcast. Before I get into it, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. If you like the podcast, if you like listening to it, if you're getting crack off it, you can support it financially by giving me the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Okay? So if you can afford that and if you feel you'd like to do it, please fucking do it. It's very welcome. It gives me a regular source of income. If you can't afford it, you can listen for free. It's a model that's based on soundness and it's doing great so far. All right? So thank you so much to all of my patrons. Let's get into the live interview, lads. Yart. One last thing before I get in trouble. Um, Australia, okay? I announced a live podcast tour in Australia for February 2020. They sold out really, really fucking quickly. Um, there was about Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Sydney. Um, they all sold out really quickly. They sold out in about a week. <coughs> and people were getting annoyed going, look, they sold out too quickly. I'd love to see the podcast. So I'm after announcing now additional live dates for the podcast tour in Australia for February 2020. Um, just so so you get a chance to come along. So there's new dates that the tickets go on sale this week. Uh, the 10th of February, I'm going to be in Melbourne in the Thornbury Theatre. On the 12th of February, I'm in the Paddington in Sydney. And on Saturday the 15th of February, I'm going to go to New Zealand in the Hollywood Theatre, I think it's called. So there you go. There's new dates announced for Australia and an extra one now for New Zealand uh, in February 2020. Go to troubadormusic.com if you want to get tickets for them and they'll go pretty fucking quickly because the last ones went in about a week. So there you go. God bless. So I'm here with Jerry Murphy and Claire Watson. Jerry is a, a, a gaseous and biofuel researcher and Claire Watson, you work in the Marai Research Centre in County Cork and the reason we're chatting here today is because it's for Science Week 2019 and 2019 Science Week is focusing on climate action so firstly jerry what is biofuels what, what, what is it you do yeah what we we try to look at in particular my work is related to gas and the reason i look at gas is that twice the amount of electricity is sold as gas now when you say gas just to democratize it like do you mean gas in general just i mean, any type I mean of gas vapor? in general okay so if you look at ireland we will burn twice as much gas in terms of energy as electricity. So I yeah. want to make that gas green. Yeah. Uh, and we're looking at ways of having green gas. Uh, and for example, um, Denmark at the moment has 20% of its gas comes from organic feedstock. So it brings you into circular economy. It brings yeah. you into, I mean, if you're down in, for example, Dingle, you could take slurry, you can take food waste, you could take seaweed, you could have a, an anaerobic digester and produce gas. And that gas could be used to run a little bus and that bus might go to Ken Mayer and you have a sort of a circular economy. And, and when you're producing gas, you can do things around it in a bio 
entire refinery type of way. So we'd be huge advocates, for example, of seaweed, and you can take out um, you can take out the products from the seaweed, yeah, uh, and that then can allow a biorefinery in in Dingle, and you can have graduates and you can have smart people working there. We can use things like microalgae to upgrade the biogas, and then you have another product. So what we would like to see is that we'd like to see. Farmers producing beef, producing cheese, but also producing seaweeds and alginates and microalgae. And you have a little biorefinery, advanced technology area where people now are are living there and they're spending money in the community. You've got little buses that are running around the peninsula. Like, for and, example... Are you, are you, are you saying, Jerry, so that, like, already, like, within our agricultural industry, within things that are happening every day in order for us to consume, that... There's essentially wasted energy. There is wasted energy. Like what we would find is if you look at a slurry pit. Yeah. And we have an awful lot of cattle in this country. We have the third highest. Now, what's a slurry pit? Just just for people listening from Greece. It's if you have uh, cows. Yeah. uh, Their 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 poo goes into a tank, and that tank across Ireland, you've got these tanks full of poo. Yeah. And we keep that until spring when we can spread it on the land. Yeah. But what's coming off that tank all the time is methane. And just going straight into the and air. And going straight into the air. And, and Ireland has a third of all its greenhouse gas from agriculture. And that includes these slurry tanks, which are producing methane, and they're 28 times more pollutant than carbon dioxide. So an argument I would have is that if we had carbon neutral electricity, if we had wind turbines everywhere, yeah. we would still have methane going into the atmosphere from... Um, slurry tanks and from food waste and from cheese waste. So our perspective is you you capture that and you can use that to displace natural gas. So just to, to make it really basic, so just from what I'm hearing, like, so one of the big fears that people have around, the like me personally, right, I, am, I have a plant-based diet like five, six days a week now because of the climate to see if I was able to do it because I'd seen a UN report or something that just said we all need to reduce our meat and dairy consumption by about 70%. So, because we are aware that it, it's producing gases that are warming the planet. Mm. So, are you proposing that there's a way these gases that are out there warm and everything, they can be harnessed and used as energy? Yes. And okay. at the moment in Denmark, 20% of all their natural gas is covered by gas that was produced from slurry and dungs. Yeah. So they, they take that gas and the gas comes from sewage sludge, from food waste, from cheese plants, from abattoirs, from slurry, and they convert it into biomethane, which they put into the gas grid, and it then displaces natural gas. So electricity started with coal and natural gas, and now you've wind turbines. So our thesis is natural gas can be displaced, and it can be displaced by biogas from slurries, from cheese waste, and from grass. I mean, isn't that the interesting thing? That farmers who feel quite marginalised now and they're being blamed and shamed because they have cattle. Yeah. They, their general practice is to grow grass really well and the grass can be used in a local biodigester. And, and Claire, your work uh, researching at the MAREI Centre, can you tell me a little bit about like, what is it you do? I mean, and what my research really about? is looking at how you engage people in climate action. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, uh, Jerry mentioned the Dingle Project. So yeah. we, um, what, what's the Dingle part project? of my work is supporting the Dingle Innovation Hub and ESB Networks. They are working together with the local community groups to decarbonise the peninsula. So they're looking at all the different aspects from electricity um, to biodigestion. And one of the things, Jerry actually did a very good presentation to a local event 
down there with a bunch of farmers to show them what an anaerobic digester can do. And they now are working together and they're, they got some funding. They're putting together a feasibility study, um, which will look at where or if or how um, a community owned by a digester could be run on the peninsula. And the idea of community ownership is that you have people involved, you know, because often local people feel very put upon if a big multinational yeah. company comes in and they plunk something in your view yeah. or in the area that you've loved so well or whatever, or literally in your next next door field. Whereas if people are involved from the beginning in discussion and in decision making and then feel that they're getting something out of it, it's much more likely to succeed. And just before we started chatting, we were talking a little bit about... You asked me, Claire, do I get much climate change deniers mm. in my Twitter feed? And I don't get loads, right? But mostly what I get is, I won't call them climate change deniers. I get very concerned Irish people whose families are involved in, in farming, in cattle, yes. in dairy. And I get them very concerned. And they're not being aggressive deniers. What they're saying to me is... Like, blind boy, have you seen this other report about cows? Mm. And it appears to be something that... I can tell it's just regular Irish people from rural communities really concerned and worried yeah. that their livelihood is going to go. Now, and that's a very real concern. Yeah, you know, uh, what's so that I like mean, on the ground with, it, with Irish people? Yeah, I think you need, this is where diversification comes into it. You know, you, you need to be providing more options for people rather than just saying, look, you have to shut that down, stop that and get on with it. Yeah. You know, so people, what's really interesting in Dingo is that the people who were at the initial meeting that we were part of, um, we're actually, I mean, I was sitting beside a woman and she was talking about the future of her farm for her children. She yeah. was really worried. Now she's doing a bit of Airbnb already yeah. and she's really interested. She's thinking, oh, maybe that's where our grass can go, you know, because she got the argument about cattle not being the future, you know, but she was looking at then trying to, trying to find alternatives that would keep their, their business going. Like, what I'd like to know is, like, here's the thing, like, is is there a committee set up or a government department set up who's trying to provide decent alternatives and solutions to the regular Irish farmer to go here? Like, I'll tell you one thing, I was I was chatting with uh, Kali Ennis, and he, he's a biodiversity expert and an insect expert up in Trinity College, mm. and he was speaking about the huge damage to the Irish environment and biodiversity that's done from farmers burning gorse mm. and the farmers yeah. burn the gorse because there's a grant available to mm. them if they have arable land and we were thinking like if farmers are like it's a lot of effort to be setting fire to a field mm. yeah. and it's, it's dangerous da it's dangerous yeah. it, it, you really have to go out of your way if you're deciding yeah. you're setting fire to a hill yeah. so if a farmer's willing to set fire to a hill for a grant yeah. What if? But I don't, sorry, just to interrupt there, Blind Boy, I, I don't think it's just that they're doing it for the grant. It, they've always done it. Yeah. You know, so it's a practice that they've done over the years and they feel there's no other way of getting rid of that gorse and they allow the sheep then to come in and graze because what it does is it, it brings up a flush of, of green grass. Well, it's yeah. not even grass, marron grass or whatever it is. Um, and then they put the sheep on it very often and they get a cut, you know, they get a feed for, for the sheep for a while. But it's as much about... Um, what I've been doing all my life, my father did it before me, and it takes time for people to learn how to change that. Yeah. Mm. What What if, and it's just me now with, with some hot takes, c could we envision a future whereby you offer a, like a farmer an incentive to go, mm. how about a certain part of your land is going to be wetland? How about a certain part of your land is going to be native forests with broadleaf trees that absorb carbon? I mean... 
is that something? Am I on the right track? Like the meat industry at the moment, you're you're aware of these uh, strikes at the abattoirs that yeah. the farmers aren't making money out of beef. Yeah, uh, and I was saying previously, our thirty three percent of our greenhouse gas emissions come from beef. Yeah, and the farmers aren't making money. So the farmers don't make money. We've lots and lots of cattle. They're producing methane. It's also leading to uh, a third of Irish wells are polluted. Like to me, Irish wells? Of Irish private wells are polluted. And how is that happening? It it comes from what we call non-point source pollution. So too many cattle, slurry runs into a water course, works its way down into a well. So I paid eight grand for my well to be cleaned and to have a cleaning system. But to me, we have an industry which isn't making money, which is causing pollution. There should be a way of saying to farmers, you know, we we will, uh, you should be looked after in terms of looking after the countryside, making sure the countryside is beautiful, having uh, deciduous trees, having wetlands. I mean, the farmers aren't making money. If they had less cattle... Rewaiting bogs. If they had less cattle, they'd be still making the same amount of money because they're not making money from from beef. So I I think we need to why aren't they making money from beef? They would say that the uh, meat industry is very much a monopoly and the money they're given for beef isn't sufficient for them to grow oh. the beef. So but at the moment, they're they're striking. They're striking at the abattoir. And, and is this at because, again, I'm, I, I know nothing about this, so that's why I'm asking questions. Is it because they're no longer just like selling beef to the seller? It's much more they're selling this it's beef a, to a high, someone a above, like a big... No. Yeah. And also we expect very cheap meat at the end of the chain. Yeah. You know, so that's that's an issue. The other thing, though, with farmers is, I mean, I come from a small farm and my father had 10 cattle. Yeah. And he loved those cattle, you know. Yeah. So you'd see him in the evening in the in the shed and he'd be talking to them and doing yeah. his, feeding them with the straw or the hay in the, in the winter. And for him, his cattle were, were his passion, you know. So we also have to be aware for trying to shift farmers out of cattle. It's not just about a business for a lot of them. It's it's mad so, so how some of this stuff, like, I get, I, I you know, it, it can be overwhelming at mm. times because you think of just how big everything that's affecting the climate is. And then sometimes some of the things that I go back to personally to give me a sense of solace is I look at how, People used to live 60 years ago, we say. Mm. One story that always sticks with me, and I mention it a lot in the podcast, is my, my mother said to me, in Limerick in the 50s, every single house had a pig out the back garden, and they went and brought this pig to the abattoir once a year, mm. and that was a huge portion of their meat mm. for the yeah. entire year. And not only that, the pig ate household waste. So you naturally had yeah. this type of system, and people weren't, they weren't using single-use plastic. It was just the way things were. Mm. Yeah. And we know that we need to get back to a culture. Now, firstly, you can live like that now, but it's usually people who are very economically privileged mm-hmm. who can afford to live in this way where it's sustainable and environmentally friendly. But, I mean, it's, it's part like... Is I don't it, know what I'm getting at here. But I'm wondering about the word going back. Um, I think it's about going forward. Yeah. Because I think we psychologically, and you probably understand this, is that, that we we don't like to be told with, or, or to have stuff taken off us or exactly. we don't, or don't do that. Yeah. Or you need to, people have a fear of going back to the dark ages because some of that time was tough for That's maybe different thing. reasons. Like so my we'd my have man a wouldn't fear. have had shoes. Like. Yeah. So yeah. The other, on the one hand, you have a pig out the back, but on the other yeah. hand, someone's dying of typhoid and there's not enough yeah. shoes. So we, we have shifted hugely in terms of well-being well some of us have you know 
And um, we have to be clear, I think, to be saying to people that we're talking about a vision for the future, you know, that that will be sustainable and will probably have a lot of co-benefits that we don't even know will come out of it. But we certainly, I mean, I think our lives nowadays are very stressful. Yeah. You know, we're rushing here, than, here and there. There's so many deadlines. We feel under pressure. People are having men- mental health effects because of the, the yeah. pressure, I think. And I would love to see a, a future where... A lot of our energy is coming from a local source. So whether it's a biodigester green in the biogas or it's a solar panels in a smart grid, because in Dingle, the, the ESB networks are looking at how you make the electricity network for the future, you know. Yeah. So, um, but a lot of it's going to be possibly selling energy to each other, being part of cooperative. Yeah. There's a really good quote from a, a climate scientist called Mike Hume, and he, he takes the Kennedy quote and he says, um, Ask not what you can do for climate change, but ask what climate change can do for you. Mm -hmm. So what inspires me is actually it's this vista of climate change coming down the track or some of it is already here. It's actually making a shift for the better. So we're going to shift into a future, hopefully, where we work better together. We're not constantly at loggerheads. We're, we're, we're learning personally to deal with other people who have different um, beliefs to us. And we're trying to work to, a solu- to solutions. Because one of the things Jerry and I were talking about on the train coming up was... Um, there are so many different views and mindsets out there. You know, so you might talk about something like biogas and mm-hmm. um, I come from the environmental movement, you know, so I would have had years kind of campaigning on various different things. But I have to accept that, you know, in the environmental movement and myself included, we were very black and white on the solutions. That's bad. This is good. But with climate change, we're going to have to look at this mix. There may be a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of the other, and not all of them are going to be pure. You know, they're not going to be a 100% clean. Some of them will be bridging fuels. They'll bring us from here to here, and then maybe we'll shift to there. But it's about being able to, it's being self-aware enough to know that actually I have to broaden my mind here a little bit. You know, I have to start thinking and maybe understanding where other people are coming from and trying to come to some common ground. Jerry, sorry, just a quick one. Actually, no, go on, what's your point? No, to me, there's loads of opportunities in in, in climate. You know, I would always say to my class, like, when people are, are striking on a Friday... They're striking for things to be done better. Yeah. And I would teach engineers. And the Marai Centre that Claire and I are members of, we have 200 researchers who are looking and at... What is the Marai Centre? What the is The Marai Centre is it's a Science Foundation Ireland-funded centre. Yeah. And we have 200 researchers. We're across all of Ireland. We're in Trinity, UL, Galway. We're headquartered out of the ERI and UCC. But there's 200 different researchers looking at everything to do with energy, climate and marine. And what's really nice about it is that there's no one answer. You know, and if we do a piece of work, we'll have a microbiologist, we'll have an electrical engineer, we'll have a process engineer, we'll have a social scientist. And we look at the problem in its its entirety. Holistically. Holistically. And there's yeah. no simple solutions. And, and what I find is that when you look at solutions across the planet, there's all different ways of doing things. I, I work a day a week for the International Energy Agency, and that involves a little bit of travel and looking at how things are done. But there's a, a farm in in Denmark and it's an organic farm so this guy was really stressed about climate and he was really stressed about being told that he was causing pollution so what he started off doing he's no weed killer 
And he developed this little thing where three or four people lie down, they pick weeds yeah. at the back of a tractor. But then there's no fertiliser because fertiliser is made from natural gas. Yeah. Uh, and he had cattle on straw and he was producing milk. So he had a dung mm-hmm. uh, and dung doesn't have great fertiliser value. So he built a little biogas plant. And when you put the dung in there, you get gas, but it also makes this liquid biofertiliser. Okay. And a problem with going organic is the first year you're organic, you're not officially organic and you have no fertiliser. So your yield halves. Mm-hmm. and you've half the yield at the same price, you're, you're almost bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And then the second year, you can be organic. So by making fertiliser from his dung, he had a fertiliser that was free from fossil fuel, but he's now certified as a carbon-negative milk. Wow. So he's now gone to this idea of, I have no weed killers, I have no fertilizers. my yields are very, very good because I'm making this... The reason he's a biogas plant is to make fertilizer because the the bugs in there convert all this nitrogen to stuff that's amenable to the soil. So he's making fertilizer. He sells biogas. He's got organic milk, which gets twice the price of normal milk. And he's got organic crops. And I find as I travel and look at all these scenarios, every solution is different. And that's what Marai looks at. There's many, 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 many different ways of doing things. One thing I'm quite impressed with in London, they're looking at buses running on hydrogen. Yeah, and what they're looking at is they'll have offshore wind. Yeah. Uh, and the wind, if you build an offshore wind plant, which some people are very happy with, yeah. but you have to build a transmission line. Mm-hmm. So Ireland's going to have offshore wind maybe off the East Coast. Yeah. People probably won't be too annoyed with that. But if you start building power lines across the country straight away, yeah. people are going to say, if it's visually there, this like, is visual, oh, yeah. I might get cancer, oh, there's radiation. Yeah. So there's other solutions such as electrolysis. We can make hydrogen. So you can make hydrogen from the wind. Hydrogen goes in the bus. Actually, yeah, that's one thing I'd like to ask about. Now, I know very... The, the, here's the little bit I know about hydrogen, right? And the, the back of a, a cereal packet version. That you can run an electrical current through water and that will turn into hydrogen fuel. And then when it burns, that, that turns into uh, in, back into water when you burn it. Yeah. And it's one of these things where it sounds too good to be true. Like, what, what's the deal with, with hydrogen? Is, is hydrogen fuel, is, is that within your remit? Is that within the it biogas? Is, yeah, we, we, again, within Marai, we look at, we look at every solution possible. Like hydrogen fuel cell cars. Like, yeah. how far are we from that? Is, is it economically possible? Is, is it? We, we would see hydrogen for buses and trucks. Like, to me, I, I, I drive an electric car. Yeah, like and fully electric. Well, what I have is a plug-in hybrid. So I get 40 kilometres on the plug-in and then it becomes a hybrid. But I travel 30 kilometres to work. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. I, I'm not using any petrol except if I were to drive to Dingle for a weekend. Yeah, yeah. But I have, basically I have no fuel bill. It's, it's running yeah. on electricity. And I do see these electric cars being, they're great to drive. Yeah. You know? And you get a grant from the, from the government and they're very, very comfortable and you get free parking in town and you get free electricity. They're fantastic. But what we find difficult is trucks. If you've got an articulated truck, say going from yeah. the west of Ireland over to France, that would need about a 16-ton battery. So to me, when you're looking at trucks, then you're looking at hydrogen. Or you're oh, looking at right. methane. So the, the wind turbine can produce hydrogen to run trucks. Or you could have a creamery in the west of Ireland and all of the byproducts in the creamery could be converted to methane and that could run the truck. So we would see gas... And that gas can be liquefied or be, can be compressed to run trucks. So yeah, yeah here, looking... here's the other simple question, right? So if, you dis- if, if, if tomorrow all of a sudden we decide to start using biofuel or biogas, like, do you need to change the engine in your car? Do you need to change the engine in your gas? Like, how does it work? Can you just start pumping seaweed gas into someone's house 
and it starts working where natural gas worked yesterday. Yes. So the, the, the methane you produce from biogas is, is methane. It's CH4, which is the same as natural gas. But, uh, for example, Wright Brothers and Balamina, who, who were slightly getting into trouble, but they were making the hydrogen buses for, for London. So our perspective And where is, are they getting their hydrogen? It will come from a wind farm in... Um, but how does a wind farm turn into hydrogen? The, the electricity is, is, is put into electrolysis and it's split. So you get hydrogen and oxygen. So the hydrogen then is put into the bus and the bus will run on a fuel and, cell. And are they running that electricity through seawater? Or? Well, you, you, you'd have a cable coming ashore and then the cable will go to electrolysis, which is basically a, a piece of process equipment yeah. that passes a current through water and you get oxygen and oxygen has an economic value yeah. and you get hydrogen and the hydrogen then would go into buses. And it's rocket fuel essentially, isn't it? It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 uh, there's no emissions like one thing, I, I would be quite cross, and I get cross quite often. In Dublin bus now, they're looking at plug-in buses that'll be hybrid diesel. Now, I've, I, as I said, I have a plug-in car. I get 40 kilometres, and, and typically I drive 30 kilometres to work. And yeah. So I'm not using petrol. But if you have a bus that does 400 kilometres a day, and it's a plug-in hybrid, yeah. at some stage you're on to diesel, and then you're back to air quality. Mm-hmm. And, and again, in our centre, air quality is very important because... I was talking to Claire on the way up. I, I'm trying to be good. And yeah. it's very hard to be good. So I have an electric car. Yeah. But I'm aware that 70% of the electricity in Ireland comes from coal there you go. and natural gas. So my exhaust is out in County Clare. It's at money point. Yeah. And then I decided I have a bit of land. So I, I have trees, planted lots of trees. And in a storm, one comes down, I chop it up and I have two wood stoves. And I'm thinking, hey, I'm great. But I'm not now yeah. because you've got air quality. So whenever you look at a problem, we try to look at it from a multifaceted perspective. And, and what you're talking about there is is a lot of what I get online, I, do, I don't get a huge amount of climate denial, but I get a huge amount of apathy from people who just go, what's the point? They just go, even if I buy an electric car in the morning, they needed to have a giant ship to bring it over. Even I, I hear people going, even if I convert to veganism and, and I do it for the good of animals, a, 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 a lot of foxes were killed by the truck that had to deliver my, my tofu to me. Do you know what I mean? So people have a sense of apathy. But like, how do we, how do we, actually one thing you said there, Jerry, right? What the fuck is going on that so much of our electricity is coming from coal? That sounds really archaic. What, why is, why? Well, we're hoping that will be phased out. Money Point, which is not far from here, is a one gigawatt coal-fired power plant. What, like, is it cheap? Like, is there even coal in Ireland? They're bringing it in the, from the Poland. Coal comes from Poland. And, and the reason, I remember before I was quite annoyed that Engineers Ireland argued to keep it as coal for security of supply. Yeah. So they, they were afraid, if we have natural gas coming from a pipe in Scotland, if someone broke that pipe we would have no electricity. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. coal was there. But my understanding is it will be phased out quite soon. Okay. Like what, what you need with electricity is we have lots of wind turbines. They're fantastic. Yeah. But when but they're not the most reliable, as in, as in they depend upon wind, don't they? Yeah. So when it's not windy, you need something else and you need something dispatchable that you can turn on and, and turn off. And again, at the moment, that's natural gas. What we're hoping is that we can provide green gas so that you can have all these whiskey residues and food waste residues and slurries that we can make biogas and you can store that biogas until the wind stops blowing and then you produce electricity from that methane. So you can store it, you can ramp it up, you can ramp it down. But typically because we are an island, we're not like Germany or France, we're not that well connected. Yeah. We're building an interconnector at the moment to France, which would be a gigawatt, 
but Ireland uses around 8 gigawatts. So we have and is this, that a shared electricity grid? That's a shared electricity yeah. grid with France. Uh, and again, France has a lot of nuclear power, so there's potential mm-hmm. for us to be using that nuclear power in Ireland. Yeah. And there's potential for us to send the wind power back into France. But that gives us some security. But we do need something you can turn on and turn off. And that, like PV or, or solar electricity, is only by day. Yeah. It's not by night. Wind is only when it's windy. Offshore wind is interesting because it tends to be windier out there. We expect yeah. them operating 60% of the time. But I suppose what we look at in Marai, it's complex. Like, it's not just wind, it's not just PV. Even I do a bit of work for the IEA and we're looking at India in the future and they reckon India will be covered in PV. Yeah, because one of the questions I was I was asked on Twitter was, uh, like, uh, another thing that I get is, Asher Ireland's tiny, who gives a shit? What about China? What about India? What's happening there? Because I know India and China use a huge amount of coal yeah. to generate their electricity. Um, I mean, what... what, what I know it's outside of your kind of remit because you're dealing with Ireland. I spend a lot of time in China. Yeah, uh, what's going on over there? I mean, are they conscious? Are they aware? They are. I mean, well, I suppose when I'm over there, I'm dealing with academics, but there's more electric buses made in China than the rest of the world put together. Mm -hmm. And solar PV. And I I sure even last week I saw, because again, one of the limitations of electric vehicles is for the average person, for someone who's in their early 20s out of college and they are even looking at a car, they're looking at a, a car from 1998. Yeah. And, and electric cars are, are, you want to be able to afford them. China, I did see last week, are after making the first proper affordable electric car. There's one in India as well, which is very cheap. Riva, is that the? Yeah. 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 I mean, the trouble is you got kind of social norms as well that people don't want yeah. to necessarily be driving something that looks a bit wacky. Yeah. You know, so. Or, the, or has no sound. Yeah. People, people need to have this call of an engine. Turbocharged, whatever. Yeah. But I think the, the electric car has now become sexy, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, th- you know, the, the, um, what's the, the car company? Tesla. Tesla, yeah. In, he, he was wisely actually, I think. He, he, um, priced his early cars very, very expensive. And so he then had them, um, he advertised that the, the, the stars were driving them to the Oscars or whatever. Yeah. So he actually hit the top of the, the status ladder first. And now he's moving down and becoming cheaper. The difficulty is if you start providing a cheap, um, model of something straight off, then people may not cotton onto it. I mean, it's unfortunately yeah. the way we operate. Um, exclusivity. Well, we like to be up with the trends and with the yeah. fashions, you know. So I think um, as a society, we have to be somehow shifting the fashion trends. What is acceptable and what, and what isn't, you know. And we need to be, I've, I've heard you talking in your podcast a lot about emotions. Yeah. You know, about kindness and compassion and empathy. We also have to be looking at our value system. You know, we need to be taking on the values that care about climate change, that care about human survival and, you know, the, the future of the planet or whatever. Um, and if we change our value system, then we're more likely to want to make the shifts. So the people who are saying to you, listen, why bother and what about yeah. China? It's a little bit of a let out clause. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's very easy to say we're a small country. But the truth is we are leaders in something. We're leaders, for instance, in dialogue like the Citizens' Assembly. There are other countries looking at how we did that. It was the fantastic. The smoking ban. Yeah. We're the first plastic bag, bag tax. Plastic bag tax. Yeah. And you know they have some research um, to show that we, we, if you, we're the most popular, the plastic bag tax is the most popular tax in Europe. And they reckon if you took it away from the Irish people, we'd kick up. Yeah. You know, so I mean, we are able to shift and to change. Sure. I, I did a podcast there last, uh, last year because again, and it was in response to the same thing. People were saying, sure, we're tiny, we're Ireland. 
And I was making the point, it's like, we can, what we can do is lead by an example because Ireland's, like, our carbon footprint might be pretty small compared to larger countries, but our cultural footprint is massive. And one of the proposals that I put last year in a podcast was, we have this thing called St. Patrick's Day and it's celebrated everywhere and it's already green. Why don't we as a country start moving the ideology of St. Patrick's Day away from going on the lash and instead going that this is our new green national holiday and we as Irish people who put a diaspora all around the world are now going to try and use our cultural influence to change the world with this St. Patrick's Day thing. I mean, right now as well, like if for such a small country, we've also got Halloween. Halloween is ours, like. The Irish come up with Halloween, so oh, we have Hallow's these... Eve. Yeah, we've got these cultural holidays all around the world. So when people say we don't have a huge carbon footprint, mm. we have a cultural footprint that's gigantic. And, and people love the Irish. And you they know, love us, I mean, yeah. the soccer, uh, the, you were talking about the soccer um, supporters. You know, yeah. we are a, a, a nation that people respond to. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right that we have to be creative in, in, in what we do and we have to include as many people as possible in the actual d- designing of these ideas. But what, what I find inspiring at the moment is I do think our government is beginning to get it, you know. Yeah. And you, and you hear the, um, the, 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 the Minister Bruton and the T-shirt talking about we were laggards, you know, that we are laggards and they're admitting that we're doing really badly. I mean, I think that's always the first step to actually sit, put your hands up and say, listen, we're not doing what we should be doing. But there's this sense that we can now become a leader. And that's us. Like, that's the Irish fear. We go from the worst in the class to the best in the class. And I think we somehow may be able to, to do a bit of that. It's, but there's a few things that concern me. I mean, one thing I'd like to know is, like, recently... So you, you can, like, obviously you can see the government is responding to, mm. because of the recent elections and they saw how many people decided to vote green. Yeah, and the young they, people, in fairness. Yeah, they yeah. were able to see that, like, pe- people are caring about this now. Mm. But then, like, Leo a couple of weeks ago, and it was really disappointing. So he gave this huge announcement about they were going to plant all these trees in mm. Ireland. Yeah. But then it turns out there were there were Sitka spruce trees, mm. which benefit more the logging industry rather than native deciduous trees. Mm. And... Peatlands. He was going to plant them in the and wrong peatlands too, instead of rewetting the bogs. And when I saw that, I didn't feel that like they were being disingenuous or anything like that. I felt that like Jesus, you're not informed. Yeah, maybe. Because if anyone who knew their stuff was present, they'd go, mm. "Hold on a second, lads. What you're doing? I can see you're trying to do something good. However, like that's what freaks me out. Mm. Who's there up at the people who are making decisions? Experts saying you're." You, your heart's in the right place, but here, actually listen to a scientist, please. Like, is that called lobbying? I mean, wh- whose job is that? How do, how do we as normal people ensure? Because it's all good for us as human beings to be getting informed as civilians. Mm. But ultimately, who's in the ear of the people making decisions and how do we get the right people into their ears? Yeah, I suppose as, as a science centre... One thing we're always wary of is we're not lobbyists. Yeah. Uh, and everything we do is from peer review press. You know, yeah. we, we study, we write papers, they're assessed. Uh, and we do talk to the government quite often. And I, I do think they listen to us. But there's sen- there, there tends to be a sense of they employ uh, a well-known management consultant. Yeah. Uh, typically with an American background who crafts something and it's produced. And, and that yeah. seems to be, and then we argue about it. Like one thing I love about uh, I'm I'm from West Cork, you know, and and I've noticed that when I have friends over, they're always blown away by in the restaurant you have a you have all these photographs and it's like Jamie's oysters from Oyster Haven, yeah, yeah, you know, um, 
Oh, Frank's great for that. Yeah, so we have all, yeah. like you can see in the wall where all your food is from and it's it's that, I would, it's sort of a slow food movement. It's, uh, it's, and all my international it, bodies it, are saying, this is fantastic. Is that, I, I'm going to tell you a, a roaring hot take now that I have about that in West Cork. I heard that West Cork became very heavily populated by kind of European hippies in the 50s and 60s because someone said to them in the event of global yeah. nuclear catastrophe mm. it's West one Cork of the safest places yeah. Yeah. I live in Ballydehab or near Ballydehab but, but yeah, <laughs> it, it, like, it, is it right because I do when I look at West Cork and I see little small industries small farmers and, and Cork West Cork has always been very much ahead of the rest of Ireland yeah. in terms of environmentalism and being conscious of being small producers and things. Mm. Is that that hippie European influence? There's What's definitely the diversity in West Cork, isn't there? You know, I mean, there'd be a lot of different people with different views. And I think there's an acceptance of that. Yeah, and yeah. it's like little, little farms are producing yogurts. Which Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jam on them, yeah. Macallan, and I think that's fantastic. So rather than well, it, for the first time, it's given Ireland a real food culture, which we never, we never had good had. food. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. But if the farmer does that on the farm, the farmer's making more money from the farm because my my concern is I go to a restaurant and you're looking at a steak as twenty eight euros, yeah, and you're looking at uh, a bit of a bit of cod as thirty euros, and I'm thinking a guy stuck a line in the water and got a cod, he's getting thirty euros, and the farmer who's had two years of raising the cow is getting. And I'm, I'm always wondering, how do they decide prices on a menu and why is fish more expensive than beef? And yeah. to me, if the farmer can make yogurt on the farm rather than having a tanker taking away milk, if he can say, I'm going to make ice cream, I'm going to make milk, I'm going to sell it from my farm into my local village and there's a slow food movement, that's how farmers make money. Yeah. And one thing I, I despair with is that I cycle a lot. I love cycling and I live in Kinsale. Well, I live near Kinsale. It's my closest town. I can say it was beautiful in the winter, but in the summer, it's full of cars. And I'm thinking, it's like the smoking ban. I can imagine in 15 years' time, we'll have a photographic in sale full of cars. I mean, in the winter, when you take out the cars and you're walking up the street and there's a little restaurant and there's a coffee shop and, and you're walking on the street, as opposed to the summer, when it's bumper to bumper to bumper and they're... Like, I, I, I think what's missing in the Irish countryside is a, is a public transport yeah. system little small buses and this leads back to what we were looking at in Dingle you know if there was a local community producing produce the end product went to a digester the digester produced biogas the biogas goes into the small bus like my dad I, I, I had a lovely father who loved talking and uh, his health sort of left him in his late 60s and but he loved to talk and he was lonely I always feel if, if you put my father in a little bus 
and he drove around Novel and all Spot these little on. areas and he picked guys up and he brought them to the pub and he chatted to them and he went around again and he drove them home and he went into Kinsale and he went out to Novel. And we don't do it. I mean, a bus comes to Novel once a week. The irony of that as well, Jerry, is like, not only is is it environmentally friendly, but it's also the impact on, on social and cultural yeah, issues. Yeah. And like my, my dad's from West Cork as well, right? And what he used to tell me about when he was a kid, and I, I, so one of the issues that in rural communities that uh, people are facing is it's the sense of isolation. And loneliness. Mm-hmm. Loneliness mm-hmm. and isolation. And a lot of it is because of uh, drink driving. Yeah. Like yeah. people used to go to the pub and used to drink and that's obviously a terrible thing and I'm not yeah. saying let's bring back drink driving. But my dad used to tell me stories about before drink driving when lads would go to the pub and there was a donkey and cart out the back they'd climb into the cart and the donkey knew the way home. Mm. <laughs> and then I was thinking why can't you have these electric pods full of drunk old men just floating around the countryside. Do you know what I mean? But like, yeah, yeah. you can also bring back, I mean, yeah, because I got a green politician a couple of weeks ago, he started saying, you know, people in the country shouldn't be using cars, but people were very angry about it because yeah, it was such yeah, a Dublin-centric yeah. view. Just going, do you understand. not understand what it's like down here? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a tough one because, just back to the, okay, you, you lads aren't lobbyists. Do lobbyists exist? Are there lobbyists in Ireland who's, like, and I'm assuming lobbying then, it has to come from some type of investment. Like, wh- how do we make, I love hearing about the things that you're talking about. I love, when I get anxious about the climate, I love to hear that you can make uh, an environmentally friendly gas from shit that's already been produced. Mm-hmm. But then I go, that's all well and good. How do we make it happen? How do we start doing but it you next know year? How every individual can is, is that you um, lobby your local politician. Okay. You know, and you, you, you make sure you vote. So we and you become vote. the lobbyists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are lobbyists. Environmental groups would lobby all the time and there yeah. would be industry lobbyists. You know, I mean, there, we're not quite like America yet, but, but there, there are people lobbying. But the individual can vote. I mean, I think that's the greatest bit of power that we have. And I think in the next election, it's going to be very interesting, you know, because I think there will be definitely a, a green swing. Um, and that, that's where people can, can be involved. I, I'm always amazed. Like, as I was saying, I live near Ballet de Hob. And so whenever anyone comes to my door looking for a vote, I do talk to them about climate change. And I yeah. have to say, I'm surprised at how little they know usually. Yeah. People. Yeah. But uh, I, sorry. The citizens assembly that, yeah. that you mentioned. I think that would be fantastic to, to look yeah. at agriculture and have a citizens' assembly. Yeah, And, say and there is going to be another round, I'd say, because it was so successful. Yeah. We've had two rounds, two citizens' assemblies now, and we should be having a third one. But what was really interesting about this citizens' assembly, they spent two weekends looking at climate change. They looked at a number of issues, and climate change was one of them. But they made 13 recommendations, so there were about 99 people in a room, you know, and they were they were... Um, chosen from by a polling company. So they're a representative of the population of Ireland. And um, they made 13 quite far-reaching recommendations on what should be done about climate change, what the government should do. And then a joint Oireachtas committee was set up. So that was from uh, representatives from the different political parties came together in a room for about eight months. And they had people like us, because I was at one of the presentations. They they invited anyone and everyone to present to them over an eight-month period to help them work out how do you implement the Citizens' Assembly recommendations. And they put together a far-reaching report. Actually, we were all quite surprised at the end of that. And they did that collaboratively. It was the different yeah. parties all in a room together. You know, it was quite fascinating to watch. And then out of that came the government plan, which was launched in May. 
Now, in fairness, it got watered down a bit and people would have, would have been critical about some areas. But what they did do is they changed the governance system. Yeah. So that's much more robust now. So, I mean, there's going to be pressure on local authorities, on the different agencies to step up to the plate. There's, there's, um, what, we, you know, there's targets and there's yeah. timelines now, which we wouldn't have had before. So I see that as being quite hopeful. But then it's back down to us as people to make sure we get the right politicians in there in the next round so that they can do and more e- of this. educated politicians. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I'd like to touch on, again, like taking it back to the negatives that I hear online when I try and mention mm-hmm. anything about the climate. Another negative I get is, ah, sure, that's only a lot of bullshit that's made up to give us more taxes, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, here's what I'd like to know. Because we live in, in a capitalist society, right? A lot of the, what gets things moving often is when you go, there's going to be jobs created, there's going to be money made. Like, I might have people listening to this who have money, who are investors. Mm. Like, do you see a future whereby people can start really investing in these alternative forms of fuel and it's creating jobs Mm. and it's moving small economies and it's, it's like, it's one of the things with the Green New Deal over in America. It's, you remove the fossil fuel industry uh, or, or your move will say the, the way the dairy industry works or the meat industry works in Ireland are people going but shit my livelihood depends on this how do you put in the alternatives where it's like no you might actually end up having a new livelihood mm. new communities could form H- how does that work I mean is there investment happening in biofuels are people knocking on the door there, there is I mean one thing I do find is that uh, within the Marai Centre uh, the model we have is that it has to be industry relevant and industry have to put okay. money into the centre. So we would work, for example, with the ESB. Yeah. Uh, and the ESB came from the fossil fuel industry. We work with uh, Ervia and Gas Networks Ireland, which, again, would be seen as the fossil fuel industry. But, like, if, if you look at, say, just to be non-specific, Chevron or BP, yeah. or Shell, they're huge. Yeah. They're absolutely massive. I gave a talk not so long ago and a lady from Shell came up to me and said, this is phenomenal stuff. Yeah. And their perspective is that if there's going to be a liquid fuel, we're going to own it. Okay, yeah. So, like, if we do produce a liquid biofuel, Shell would see itself as the people who would sell it or Chevron would see it as the people who would sell it. So to me, there there is a need to work with the fossil fuel industry. We would look at offshore floating wind turbines, for example. Yeah. This is a, a an area that's really relevant in that you can go into deep waters and have a wind turbine that's sticking up in the air, uh, a blade the width of Croke Park on rounded yeah. circles. And the people who have that expertise is people who run oil rigs. So to me, you've got to deal with the fossil fuel industry and look at what they do and take their expertise and make it green and but- make it... The thing is there, Jerry, what would what would terrify me about that, about big money coming in, right, is just they tend to think of everything in terms of how can I make the least amount of, most amount of money possible with the least amount of effort. And I know, like, critiques that I've seen of biofuel, right, the critiques that I would have seen is, we'll say, huge amounts of, if you were to make massive amounts, mm. massive amounts of deforestation, in order to grow a certain yeah. crop. Uh, yeah, that is palm oil, is that is that the one? Or, or the palm oil in Southeast well? Asia and uh, we have sugarcane in Brazil. Sugarcane, ch- yeah, yeah. I, that was the one. Because I, I know that in, in, in Brazil, they've been using biofuels for quite a long time. Uh, ethanol. From ethanol, yeah, from mm. sugarcane. But then people are saying, but sugar clear in the rainforest to make it. Mm. So, and that's 
some people have that kind of taste in the back of their mouth about biofuel. And a worry that it was taking over from food crops. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, there is a way to do this where we, it's we actually We had a discussion harmful. about that at one of our, our meetings in, in, in Brazil. I was out in Brazil talking about this and they were saying sugarcane doesn't like wet, doesn't like rain. Yeah. So sugarcane isn't in the rainforest. But then what happens is you grow sugarcane and you displace cattle. Mm-hmm. And then the cattle go into the rainforest. So you, it always tends to be this domino effect. And then people say, well, cattle are in the rainforest, stop eating meat. And then they say, well, don't fly. I mean, it becomes, it's very difficult to be good. Yeah. And I, I heard your podcast on, on, on worrying about uh, climate anxiety and getting yeah. on a plane. I mean, planes will not run electricity. Like this Max yeah. Boeing that's just been built. I, I just came back from a flight and the plane was built in the late 80s. Like the planes that are built now will be in operation in the next 25 years. They're going to run on liquid fuel because at the moment they run on liquid fuel. So there yeah. has to be a liquid biofuel or else we don't fly. And, and to me, again, it's difficult to be good. I mean, if you're going to fly, it's going to be a liquid fuel. If it's a liquid fuel, where is it coming from? Yeah. Is it coming from a crop? Is it coming from high? Hy- like hydrogen is a great source of liquid fuel. So if you have wind turbines, you can make hydrogen and the hydrogen then can then go on to a liquid fuel. But what are the critiques of, like, I, again, I'm just going from some agent on the internet, but I've heard, like, if, if a hydrogen bus blew up, it would take three blocks with it. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it, it, it depends on like, the is engineering. is it safe? Well, what is safe? I mean, you know, is it safe to fly? I mean, I get off a plane, I think, oh my God, it's up there in the air. I mean, the technology is there. And and again, I mean, you know, all of the technology that we use has gone through a process. And typically what happens is there's an accident and then we see what happened in the accident. We make things better. So we see that new Boeing Max. I mean, the reason... What is the Boeing Max? The Boeing Max is a plane that was built by uh, Boeing that was going to be the most efficient plane. Yeah. And was going to have big engines. And the problem with the engines, they were bigger than the normal engines. So if you put it on the wing, it would scrape off the floor. So they put it on top. Yeah. So it's on the wing. And that changed the stability. And what happened in the two plane crashes, one was in Ethiopia, I think, yeah. is that the center of gravity changed and there's a bit of software that would help the plane to tilt. Yeah. But there was a problem. But this plane is seen as highly efficient when they sort the problem with the center of gravity and, and Ryanair are going to buy loads of them. Lots of companies are going to buy them. But that plane when it arrives, will be very efficient in terms of, of use of liquid fuel, but there's going to be lots of them and they're going to be here for another 20 or 30 years. What are they running on? And, and this yeah. is, I mean, to me, like the ideal scenario is that we have local food, little towns, we're cycling, we're all staying together. But once you get on planes, I mean, my carbon footprint is dominated by flying. Yeah. And if any family take an overseas travel, you can forget all about the electric cars and the walking. Yeah, that yeah, plane yeah, yeah. journey is a huge source of carbon. Yeah. So I think it's something we need to figure out ourselves. Do you, do you, do you think it's going to become more expensive? Because you would hear people, people saying that actually we're not going to be able to afford to fly like we do now. Well, I mean, again, a part of the issue that we're seeing with, with the, the reason flying is causing so much hassle is that it has become incredibly cheap. Again, the 50s and 60s, flying used to be a luxury. There's a lot of stuff that we take for granted. Like I was, I was looking at... 500 grams of beef shouldn't cost five quid. If you look at the amount of water that goes in, the amount of food that goes in, it just shouldn't. We've become accustomed to this, unfortunately. That's why I was trying to trying to get people to, to look at start eating insects yeah. like the amount of water and food that goes into an insect for a vast larger amount of protein and the thing is too we were, for seven years we were all eating horses and we never even knew it yeah. do you know about yeah. that horse scandal the meat scandal where we were all eating horses so 
I think we'd start eating flies very easily. It's just but, protein. But also, do we have to learn to respect things? You know, so actually ha- give something a value. So not take flying for granted anymore, not take eating meat, you know, and actually look at our lifestyles. I think we're all able to kind of shave off some things in our lifestyle. As it happens, I don't need to fly. So I, I, I don't, I'm not like Jerry at this high level. Yeah. Um, and the work I do is actually very Irish based. So it, and I don't have George Mambio. He's this again, Guardian journalist. He talks about love miles. Yeah. So a lot of people, in fairness, in West Cork, they'd have families, you know, living somewhere else. So they do have to visit them or their their elderly parents or whatever. So who am I to judge that? You know, but I'm lucky. I don't have to do that. So yeah. in my lifestyle, I can fly. Very, I mean, I haven't flown for about two or three years. Um, so I think it's about us all looking at where we're at and what we can actually change. I am now looking at driving. I do drive too much. You know, I yeah. drive a Prius, but that's not brilliant. I know that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm trying to, to cut it down by working a bit more at home. I'm doing a great thing, which actually I love, is I'm buying from charity shops, you know. So I'm having, I, that's really fun. Like, there's nothing like a good bargain um, that, that makes you, cheer you up for the day. But it, but it, as Jerry's saying, it's looking at where, what we eat and where we, where we get our food. And I think back to you, you saying that, um, you know, you're getting these kind of cynical comments and yeah. the, the naysayers. I mean, I don't know how you shift people's mindsets, but I think if those of us who feel, um, we, we need to talk about climate change. That's one of the things in, in over the last 10 years that this kind of theory came around climate, um, deni- climate silence. Yeah. So that we were actually afraid to talk about it, to mention the words. Yeah. So what you're doing is brilliant. You're bringing it up in your podcast and you have a million li- listeners actually hearing you talk about climate change. So that's really important. But we then need to be talking about what we can do. So p- people that's need to know they can do something. There is a, you know, and back to the, the climate anxiety, it is very easy to become anxious because the problem seems so big and it seems so out of our reach. What can I do? What is turning off the light switches? What's that going to do? You know, That's it. but the truth is if you, if uh, like billions of people do things, then that all does add up actually. Absolutely. But it also helps shift back to the social practice and the social norms. If enough of us change what we do, then that becomes the norm. You know, so we need to be looking at part of that. And the young people, in fairness to them, they're beginning to do that. They're looking at their lifestyles. And, you know, Greta trying to to lead by example. Um, There's something about leadership. We need leaders. So that's good if the government are beginning to act and we see business people taking steps. You know, we need to see that. But we also have to have leadership from the ground. Town planning is a big thing. I mean, of course, yeah. Like, I hate driving. I have I have an electric yeah. car, but I don't like driving. I love cycling. And this year, I bought an electric bike. Now I, I'm I'm about thirty kilometres from work. And what the electric bike does is is it cuts in when you go below twenty five kilometres yeah. per hour. I'm cycling along at twenty eight, twenty nine, and then I hit a hill. There's no hill. What an electric bike does is there is no hill. So it's it's like you're you're cycling on the flat all the time. And I found the range I cycle has gone. Off the scale, I'm cycling for 60 kilometres. It's a beautiful way to travel. It's a great way. To, but the other thing as well with that, Jerry, and it's something I try and, and, and promote on my podcast, because I, I do a lot of cycling as well. I try to get across the idea to people that a lot of the conveniences that we have in our everyday life, right, these utter conveniences, are actually creating a feeling of meaninglessness. Yeah. And this meaninglessness is then driving a sense of it, it, depression, anxiety. And it's a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle, yeah. yeah. But, actually, excuse the pun, but cycling is something I use. Here's the thing. I say to people, when I get, if I get, uh, if I have to be somewhere and I get up in the morning and I have to, I look out the window and I go, it's either cold or it's wet or it's warm. Mm. 
I am now making decisions about what will I wear because I'm getting on a bicycle. So there's a, now a journey and a sense of meaning in my day. Then I go out there and I'm nice, warm and wrapped up and I'm cycling. I'm getting the adrenaline going and the wind is in my face and now I'm engaging with the environment. Like, if I cycle somewhere and I've had to think about all this stuff, whatever stress I'm facing in the day, it means fuck all. Mm. Because I started with such meaning. Whereas if you just straight up get into the car, turn on the heat... People can get into the car, arrive at their destination, and they don't even know how they yeah. got there. Yeah, no. they drive this mindlessly. Re- meaningless way. And, and, and then you haven't, you're not resilient towards the stress of the day. Mm. I, I, I like, find like taking a cold shower. A lot of the stress in the world is related to that mobile phone and, and, and looking at social media and reading about Brexit. And you get in the car and you put on the radio and you hear all the bad news and you hear about Brexit. I find in my one hour cycle to work, You've got it's, your headspace. You've got your headspace and you can think about things. You can't look at the phone because there's things going on around you. You've an hour where you're really meditating because yeah. you cannot have a conversation with someone. You can't read a phone. And I find my, my eyes are looking at infinity. My headspace is clear. Yeah. I get into work. I feel fantastic. And then I'm, all, I'm thinking I'm cycling home. And that's my yeah. tree. So I have an hour and my cycle is from the edge of a city into a very nice uh, coastal area. And I, and I love the cycle home. And I, I find this sense of well-being. And I look then when, when I'm in, in the Netherlands or Germany and all these people are cycling and they're cycling around the place. Like being in a car, in traffic, stopping, yeah. going, listening to bad news. Yeah. It, it's, the, it's the well-being. And one thing we do find is, is the level of anxiety amongst uh, people in university and I'm sure everywhere yeah. else. I mean, we've lots of students who are saying we're suffering from anxiety. I, I think if you can have exercise, if if the town planning is such that you get on a bike, you can cycle someplace, as opposed to being at work, getting in a car, listening to Brexit, listening to Syria, listening to hard things, sitting in traffic, getting home. But isn't it also about taking the time to do that? You know, at the mo- back to this thing, we're so rushed, so you have to drive from A to B quickly and to get there. Whereas actually the cycle is, ac- you're, you're giving a, a, an amount of time to that particular yeah. action, you know. And, 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 it's a and as well, your unconscious mind knows that you're doing mm. something good for your body. Yeah, yeah. And we yeah. always reward ourselves for that. And the other thing too, crucially, we, one thing we have to realise about the human condition is that humans thrive on storytelling and journey. That's how anything, we, you know, you look at religions across across mm-hmm. the world, world, folk traditions, we need to have a sense of story and journey. Mm-hmm. And absolute and utter convenience removes story and journey. Yeah. Yeah. When people say to me, uh, oh, I see you're eating plant-based six days a week. I love it because now it's after giving me a new story and journey. If I'm thinking about my chili con carne, instead of the convenience of it's a few spices and some minced meat, I'm now reading the backs of different types of beans and lentils mm. and I now have a new journey with conflict, set up conflict resolution. We all need that in our mm. day, set up conflict resolution. Convenience removes it and you remove that, we don't have meaning, you don't have meaning, your mental health And you're also learning shit. a new skill and you're achieving something, you know, you're creating a good diet for yourself. So yeah. there's a sense of well-being even from that. It's, it's one thing you always say to the climate deniers, it's like, even if it was a lot of bullshit, the solution is just making everyone's lives better. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. that, that's what I think is really important. And I'd, I'd say these to my to my students in that, like the problems that are raised by climate and have got a huge publicity because of uh, um, the Friday strikes. 
Like, it all leads to a better world. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we decide we're not going to have petrol cars, we're not going to have diesel emissions in the city, we're going to have cycle lanes, we're not going to fly it much, we're Mm -hmm. going to have local food, we're not going to be eating burgers that were brought in from... We're going to eat local good produce. It's all good. It's all good. I mean, the solution to climate change is to have a nicer life, to be more relaxed, to cycle, to eat good food, not to fly. But the the thing is there, and what... The thing is there, Jerry, is we it, like I agree with you 100%, but again, another cynicism comes in, and I can see it, is it's, it's a money thing. Yeah. Right now, to live in that way, to eat locally sourced organic, to uh, be conscious that your clothes weren't created in a sweatshop, you need to have a lot of money. Mm. So, like, how do we move society towards a place where sustainable living is actually the easy, affordable thing? I mean, one of the things that, because uh, I'm a fan of Extinction Rebellion, but a few of the things that they did recently were very tone deaf. In particular, the way so they protest pennies. The thing mm. is, p- the p- pennies, uh, yes, pennies are not great in the environment. You look at where the cotton comes from, uh, you look at pennies clothes that were made in Bangladesh. Absolutely, I don't agree with a lot of what pennies are doing. But by protesting in pennies, it was kind of tone deaf towards the type of people, very poor people in you Ireland to need shop. to shop in fucking yeah. pennies. Yeah. It's as simple as that. It provides good quality clothes really quickly and cheaply for people who have no other alternative and it can turn people off. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what's needed in order for, let's just take Ireland, for these things to become affordable? What are the systematic changes that need to happen? And let's just, I mean, food even. I worry a little bit about carbon tax. Uh, and one of the reasons I worry is that, you know, we have these grants at the moment for yeah. electric cars, which I have availed of. Yeah. It's typically 10000 for the car and yeah. you get a home charger. We also have grants for, um, well, we had grants for deep retrofit. Yeah. So if you want to have, uh, and I know Claire has this, it's fantastic. You in- insulate the house to the nth degree and you turn over air and you have almost free heat. Yeah. But it costs about 40000 for the house. An electric car costs about 40000 mm-hmm. And my concern is that in terms of equity, the government is expecting us to have a million EVs mm-hmm. and a million houses that are deep retrofitted. Yeah. And if you have an EV, like, and you have a deep retrofit house, carbon tax is irrelevant. Yeah. But that's 80000 per house if you do both. And there's a million houses. That's 80 billion for the and country. yeah, people don't have that. And like that's a million decisions that may not be made. So if the government's idea is that we will have deep retrofits and electric cars and people will buy them, and if the people don't do it, well, then we miss our climate targets. And I'm concerned that, you know, I don't pay any excise on my diesel because I'm using an electric car. So the carbon tax on diesel will have no effect on me. Mm-hmm. And the carbon tax on kerosene will have no effect on Claire because of her home heating. Mm-hmm. And, but there's going to be, and I have this, I always have this idea in my mind of a, of a, of a young policeman and a young nurse who are travelling into Dublin and the kids are in crash and they're both in diesel cars. They spend an hour and a half in traffic. They can barely afford the mortgage. And then there's a carbon tax and they can't do deep retrofit and they can't do electric cars. And I'm worried that carbon tax can affect those 
who are not able to deal with, with climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the things I would look at is that, you know, I, I see in, in, in Denmark quite often they have, again, I'm going back to biogas, but they have, they have green gas in the gas grid. So you just make a phone call and say, can I have green gas? Yeah. Uh, and it costs you a cent a kilowatt hour more as opposed to finding 40,000 to build a deep go. retrofit. Yeah. So I'm worried that, like, by changing, by the government expecting us all to change our, our own infrastructure, it's going to cost us. Exactly. And where people if, are just like, no way. And this is where I, I, I see biofuels or biogas. By changing the fuel, it has less effect. Like the most environmentally it, it, it sounds like a really convenient solution for the average person. Mm, yeah. You don't have to do it. Like, yeah. we're probably unaware, but when you're putting, if you put diesel in your car or if you put petrol in your car, at the moment, it's about 8% biofuel. We're unaware. And what the government did, they mandated the oil industry, you have to have this amount of biofuel in your petrol or diesel. So everyone out there at the moment putting petrol or diesel in their car, about 8% is biofuel. And we didn't make a decision. We're unaware. We're not paying for it. And it's produced, in your car. it's produced the greatest greenhouse gas savings in this country. Is biofuel carbon neutral? What you need to do is you need to do a, sort of a life cycle analysis. Yeah. And some is and some isn't. Okay. It depends on the source. Just a, a big question. Um, let's just say tomorrow morning, right? Uh, could Ireland run its cars off biofuel created in Ireland? Or what percentage of biofuel... Like right now, what, what, what you envision, how many cars in Ireland or what percentage could be run off biofuel created in Ireland? Yeah. We, we have done this analysis and like our perspective is cars will be electric. I think it's a, a very okay, good yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to happen. So is it more industry you're looking at No, biofuel? we're looking at haulage. So okay, one of the things yeah, we looked yeah. at is trucks. And it's about 25 to 30% of all energy and transport is trucks. So um, it's the transport that you think the battery is just going to be too big. The electricity is not a solution for this particular transport. I think at the moment, for example, Volkswagen now is building a massive factory and it's going to be the ID. ID is the, the, the car. Yeah. And it's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So I believe that electric cars will be dominant and they will become cheaper. And you will be able to get second-hand ones. And you will yeah, be able to get second-hand that's what ones. Needs to, well, I mean, you can already... Listen, I mean, look, taxi drivers, the majority of taxi drivers and other things are driving around in, in, a, in, a, in a hybrid of some description yeah, yeah. or an electric car, you know? But our perspective is it's the trucks. Like, I was down in, uh, in Castle Gregory and there's uh, Tralee Bay oysters and they're putting oysters in the back of a truck and they're selling them to Scotland, to France. Like, that truck isn't going to be electric. Yeah. So we're really, really looking at, you know... You well, what about a, ships as well? Can biofuels work for ships? They can. Because ships are pretty nasty, aren't they? They're, they're, of one of the issues with ships the is they tend liners. to run on the worst possible the one. The cruisers have to go. They're the they, worst, they have they? to go. <laughs> and they, and it's, it's a particular type of fuel that's just oh, rotten, it's, isn't it's, it? It's the, it's the lowest of the low. It's bunker fuel. It's shocking. Unprocessed. And, and when yeah. we've all these, where, where we work down in Ring of Skiddy, I'm looking across at Cove. It's a beautiful place and all these cruise liners are coming in and I'm thinking, air quality! Yeah. Um, and, and there is, uh, for example, now in Norway, there are ferries that are running on biogas from fish waste. Wow. Uh, so they fish waste, they make biogas, they turn into well, a liquid. How do you mean? Is that fish is shit or is that like it's fish dead farms. fish? De- fish farms, dead fish, they digest okay. them, convert it into biogas and they have a... One of the things that's coming into the States and into Rotterdam is they want ships to run on LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, when you come into the harbour because there's no... Um, a particulate matter from uh, liquefied natural gas. But in Rotterdam, they're now looking at liquefied biogas. Okay. So you have to have a biogas, you liquefy it, you put it into the engine, and when you're in the harbour, 
that's all you burn because therefore there's no air quality emissions and there's no carbon. And then we go back out into the deep sea. You then go back onto the bunker fuel when you're 100 kilometres offshore. Um, just for, okay, for the benefit of my listeners, right? Because I've, a lot of varied listeners listen to this. So I know I'm going to have farmers listening to this. I know there's going to be people who might be working in the cheese industry. Firstly, to my listeners, what list of people should be aware and interested in, in what you're speaking about, biofuels? And secondly, if they're like, wow, is this a new stream of income for me? What steps should they do? I would think, like, again, I, I would not be an advocate of planting thousands of hectares under a crop and, and making a biofuel. I, I would not be an advocate of palm oil, biodiesel. Yeah. or. But to me, what we have in abundance in this country, we have an abundance of slurry. We have an abundance of slaughter waste. We 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 slaughter two million cattle a year. There's a lot of waste associated. So with you that. mean like offal and things that just uh, aren't going to get eaten? Baby grasses, in particular, when when you kill a cow, there's yeah. about a hundred kilograms of grass in wow. it. Wow! And we kill two million a year. So you're looking at two hundred thousand tons of belly grass, and it's very amenable for anaerobic digestion. I'm looking at the cheese industry. I'm looking at the whiskey and, and industry. And what, what do you do with that guy? Do you put that like you just, put it in a, in a seal tank? Yeah. How does the, the bio? Let's just say now in the morning someone donates a thousand cow's stomachs full of grass to you what do you do with those cow's stomach to turn it into something that fuels a truck it's, it's actually a very simple process you have a tank which is airtight and you'd have a, a storage of around 25 days and you'd heat it to about uh, 38 degrees celsius now how do you heat it or does it heat itself well the gas that comes off about uh, 5% of that can be used to heat the digester. What they do as well is if you put it underground, if you build it okay. in the ground, it's warmer, it's insulated. Yeah. So a lot of digesters are actually underground, you don't actually see them. So you have it underground, you put in the belly grass, it takes on average 25 days and, and gas comes out. I was in a lovely town in, in Sweden by the name of Linköping. It's about 150,000 people and they had a slaughter industry and what they did was all of that belly grass goes to a digester they pipe the, the gas four kilometres. 80 buses run on the belly grass. Air quality is good. Ah, that's no importation yeah. of diesel. So that's a circular economy. You're taking a waste product. You're displacing diesel. Great air quality. Uh, and it's a closed system. What I love about that, you can put a big box around that town and all their buses are running on something that was produced. And it's... it's, it's um, and something that was going to be there anyway. And it's going to be there anyway. gone up and heated the yeah. environment. Mm. Um. Another kind of question is, is like, so often when we hear about how to improve the world, someone always pipes up and mentions a Nordic country that seems to be doing it well already, and we go, Jesus, they really have their shit together up there. How, how did, like, that, like, just to take that, that village in Sweden, like, how did that happen? How, what, 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 was it politicians? Was it people? How did they end up running their bloody bosses off cows' bellies? Well, we're just looking, we'd love to have that, but we don't know how to do it. Like one thing that's neat is you need people to talk together. I mean, what, what they realized up there, I remember I was up there at the time as around, oh, 2002, 2003. And the guy was saying to me, oh, you've taken smoking out of your pubs and you're so proud of each other. Yeah. And then you walk down the street with your children and you got these massive exhausts at there the height go. of your children yeah. and they're sucking in those diesel emissions. We've taken smoking out of the streets. This was yeah. his thesis. So you had a number of drivers, one, they didn't want to have particulate matter in the town. They didn't want diesel buses. Two, they've all this belly grass. They have a slaughter industry. There's blood. Um, 
And, and they were saying to me, what do you do with that in Ireland? And, uh, and my understanding is that when we have belly grass in particular, we plough it into the land. And he said, you'll pollute your water. Yeah. And I'm saying, but... Killing fish. You know, we, we are polluting our water. So they have a system that removes environmental pollution. It, it, it stops wells being polluted. It's producing a biofuel from something that's a residue. Uh, and it's displacing diesel. And they have a circular economy. And people are employed in this area. Uh, and when we go to Sweden, I think what they have in Sweden, they have municipalities, they have little local districts. And, and what I've noticed is academics tend to work a day a week in industry. So there is this, this idea of, of academics, municipality, and they look at their problems so it, in it's, totality. It's a, it's a broader culture. Yeah, so they're looking at air quality and agriculture. The, the, the irony here, sorry, sorry yeah, just, just, yeah. I have a point. Uh, the, the, the irony here is that if you look at how the smoking ban came in within the context of Irish culture, it's very specifically Irish because, because I remember when it came in, the two huge, I won't call them lobbies because they're not lobbies in, in a particular way, but two groups that are massively influential in Ireland, farmers mm. and vintners. Mm. And when someone said, if you're smoking in your pub, you can sue the owner of the pub, the vintners just said, well, I'm not getting sued for that. And immediately, really quickly, it came in. And... I'm seeing here, like, farmers are really, really powerful. Uh, politicians around the country will listen to what farmers want. So I think this is the key right here to get this across. It's letting farmers know this will somehow hurt your pocket or you could earn some money. What I, what I would love is, is the farmers' assembly. You know, we've had the citizens' assembly. Yeah. I would love a farmers' assembly because we're listening all the time to farmers who are making no money off beef. We're looking at farmers striking outside abattoirs. I live in a rural community and there isn't a lot of money there. No. I, I really feel that this country could have an assembly related to agriculture. And, and to me, into that, you would bring in biorefinery, you'd bring in biotechnology, but you'd look at farming. I mean, what they did, and, and I'm nervous to say this, back in 2010 in Denmark, they were saying in 2030, we will not spread slurry on the land. Yeah. And in 2020, half of the slurry can't be spread in the land because we've polluted wells and we've polluted watercourses. But that wasn't taken as a, a sort of an isolation. They then said to farmers, we will fund you to have big slurry tanks and ideally you'll cover them, you'll have anaerobic digesters. And, and they, they had a plan. I mean, to me... And, and the farmers then could have confidence in the person. Yes, and, and the farmers realised that, look, I'm, I'm going to get compensated so I can build these slurry tanks. There's going to be incentives. Like, to me, Ireland needs an agricultural convention where we discuss for two or three years how does farming survive in climate? Because I know the farmers are really struggling with being told you're bad, you're producing methane, the cows are belching. I think we need to have an assembly dominated it's, it's by thing, agriculture. Because this is what freaks me out as well. Like, I know that anti-climate change money like the, 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 is being funded through targeted advertising on Facebook and Twitter, the same way that with Trump and Brexit. Mm. And I feel that farmers are a vulnerable group to that because mm -hmm. a lot of climate change denial I see coming from dairy farmers. And I put out a call on Twitter. I think, I think the GAA could play a huge part mm -hmm. in this. I think yeah, GAA they're in every community. Starts, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because farming and GAA, it's part of the same system. It's that rural thing. And I'd love to see more. Like, I speak about climate change, but my audience is mostly kind of, I'm kind of sometimes preaching to the converted. Mm. It's kind of arty people, people who are aware of it. I'd love to see some sports stars coming out and going, I'm going to have a chat with the local farmers. I'm going to let them know this is not just this huge thing to tax you, to take away your industry. There's alternatives to improve your life. 
And as you're saying there, if beef farmers are already not making money, here's other ways. Like, I mean, how do you find speaking with farmers in your job, Claire? I mean, like, I think if you go back to Dingle, if you kind of work with people and uh, on a solution. So, I mean, the group of, of farmers who are involved in the feasibility study around the biodigester are really enthused, you know, because yeah. they can see some hope in, hope in the in the solution, you know, and I think it's about, it's about engaging people. It's about not, um, criticizing. I, I do think, I mean, I, th- I said it earlier, farmers feel very criticized. Yeah. You know, and we're very quick to, to say no meat, meat has to go. Yeah. But, you know, without ex- respecting what that means to a farmer who's, a, who's a dairy farmer. Um, one thing that intrigues me, I mean, I think farmers, ironically, because they own land, are actually a major, have a major future in this climate battle, you know, because you can grow whatever's needed. Yeah. But, but trees is another area. And um, the interesting thing is that the land value plummets if you grow trees. Wow. So, yeah. And I mean, that has to be addressed. So obviously... So there's, there's not incentive to no, have that. Because no. I would be thinking, like, if you've got a farmer, yeah. give him a grant to have a little bit of natural forest yeah. or to re-wet a bog that isn't being used. Yeah, yeah. No, somehow that has to shift. Because farmers are saying, well, if I wanted to resell this... Um, area of trees, I won't get so much money, you know. And there's also um, a a kind of a norm which says that you're not necessarily such a good farmer if you you plant, if you take your, um, Mm. put your grass into trees. There is a sort of a, isn't there, there's a status thing around, you know, I'm a good farmer if I'm managing cattle or I'm growing whatever. Trees is, is down the list. And I mean, in some way, that has to shift, I think. So farmers don't feel they're early adopters or they're doing something that other people will criticize within their own farming community. Community, or we look down at them. So it's it, it, is grants a basic solution? Is government incentivizing in grants? Like here's yeah. one thing I've always wondered. I do feel that farmers are very aware of and like the idea of geothermal energy. You just t- you tend to hear a lot of someone with a farm goes, "I've put a big thing down into the ground," and they get something, and back. they get something, yeah. and, and solar and PV it, on sheds. Yeah, is another part. You know, it's, and it's 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 a keeping up. With the, I think there's a keeping up with the Joneses element too. Yeah. Like if someone who has a farm finds out that the farm down the road are making money from a slurry <laughs> piss with this gas, it yeah. is spread fairly quickly. But they're very entrepreneurial, and and one thing I loved about working in Dingle is we we met lots of farmers down there, and there was this company Netfasa. And and what they were looking at. So this evolved from talking to the community. And this is why I think it's very important to to start with the farmers, with the community. Like they had this idea of having little chips. And the chips would say, look, this land needs nitrogen or this land doesn't need nitrogen. Yeah. Or if you bring a tractor in here, it will poach that the, the wheel will leave a big mark. And having little chips in the slurry tank saying, look, this slurry tank is going to over, overflow next week. So we need to take that slurry and put it in a digester. So they had this idea of a sort of a smart agriculture that an internet of things was tying all these farms together, telling us what areas needed fertilizer, what areas wow. didn't, what were wet, which slurry tank would overflow, which wouldn't. And in effect, and I think this is where Ireland can do great things because we've really adopted software. Yeah. You know, I could see a whole software system running around Dingle with a community digester deciding when to take slurry from which farm, when to put digestate back on the land, whether it goes into a bus, whether it goes into a combined heat and power system, uh, and then the idea of a biorefinery. But it could all be automated. I can see farmers on smartphones yeah. figuring out like which piece of my land needs to be fertilised, which doesn't. But I think we have to prepare for this. This is something we have to look forward to. And again, we need to look at the idea of a biorefinery because I would love to see seaweed farms you know if you're yeah. down in in Cahir-Syvine or you know you could have fish you could have seaweed you could be making products 
Um, and that's actually growing seaweed. I mean, I think some people feel that oh, it's seaweed. Yeah, well, do you have to own a bit of the ocean then? Yeah. What's the crack with that? Like one of the there's a the, there's a project in the west of Ireland called At Sea. And I suppose what we're looking at, we're looking at having a fish farm in the ocean. Okay. Uh, and around the fish farm, you grow seaweed. So there's little membranes and you can roll it off the back of a ship. It's full of spawn. So when, when the fish produce excrement, the seaweed uses Eats that excrement oh, to grow. Yeah. So you've got pristine the water. Aquaculture. aquaculture. You've got lovely seaweed. Uh, and I mean, if you go to China, and, and, they and eat what, seaweed what's all the benefit? The time. Is, like, obviously, okay, so people eat seaweed, people take baths in it, but are you saying seaweed can be used for biofuel as well? Uh, I'm saying that the seaweed belongs in a biorefinery. So, for example, my daughter's vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, and she cooks, so she won't eat cheesecake, she won't eat uh, jellies, she won't eat the things they put on top of hot chocolate. Yeah. So, we're always looking for alginate, and alginate comes uh, from comes seaweed. From, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if you want to make cakes that are, are jelly like, you get alginate from seaweed. Then yeah. there's polyphenols. So there's lovely little ingredients in seaweed. So our idea is that you have a fish farm and, and fish has 10 times less greenhouse gas per calorie than beef, for example. Yeah. That you then put seaweed all around it and the seaweed cleans the water. And then the seaweed is brought ashore and you take out the alginate, you take out the polyphenols and then the residue goes into the digester with the slurry and the food waste. Uh, and you now have an industry. So I, and it's I, used for medicine, isn't it's, it? It's, yeah, there's fabulous products in. Um, it's used to produce laxative. Yeah. From um, it's a saccharine. Iodine as well for iodine. Yeah. So seaweed and is a another phenomenal question, ingredient that we ignore. Um, so like, all right. So I currently control my household, the decomposable household waste, into a special bin, and the council takes it away. And then, if you want, you can go to the council, and they'll give you free compost. Yeah. Is it possible for like people with their potato scraps and whatever to be for the local council to be turning that into biogas? Oh God, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in in England, I think it's about eighty to ninety percent of food waste is digested, and biogas is produced. So are the then, Brits ahead of us with this? As yes, well? they are. Yeah, okay. and I mean, what what's interesting? They only started around four years ago. It, like to me, the penny is mightier than the stored. Yeah. Like if 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 it's written down, thou shall digest food waste. Yeah. It has to be done. Yeah. Uh, we have this law already. I think it's um, conurbations of greater than 500 people. You have to source segregation of food waste. Mm-hmm. So you want to, like when I go to Italy on holidays, they have a little bin outside the door. It's a small bin. It's collected every day. It's taken away and it goes to a food waste digester and it produces biogas. And um, I watched a presentation recently where this guy has developed his own biodigester in the garden. Wow. So he puts his own food, gets chewed up in a masticator thing in the mm-hmm. sink it goes off into this little homemade egg, egg. yeah mm-hmm. in Clonakilty yeah yeah it's fascinating so it's this big kind of egg that's all insulated and whatever mm-hmm. and then he has this blue plastic kind of container that the gas goes in and then it feeds back into fueling his cooker mm-hmm. oh wow isn't that fantastic that's fantastic that is are we behind let's is Ireland behind We're, in, in, compared to other countries like we are the laggard of Europe, according to our Prime Minister, we Which, are behind. for an agricultural country is disgraceful. Mm. But you see, in a funny way, I mean, I don't think it's always negative to be at the end of a line. You're actually coming to the point of action when the technology is developed enough. Yeah. Sometimes if you start something too early, you get the bad technology and it backfires, you know. Yeah. So we're actually oh, joining, course. we're joining the race at a good time yeah. where maybe it's cheaper or it's better technology. Yeah, because mm. I had, I had buddies... I, I know people who got solar panels 10 years ago yeah. and they ended up getting things that were designed for Spain and they said it was a waste of money and it yeah. didn't work. Yeah, yeah, no, but I, now we, the yeah. solar panels you get are for Nordic countries or whatever and it's like this actually works and it's yeah. good. And it's cost effective. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Uh, we've hit the one hour mark now, lads, so I think we'll wrap it up. Mm. Claire, Jerry, thank you so much. I love chatting about that. It was great, and I can't wait to put this one out to the listeners. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, blind boy. Mm. Appreciate that. That was very enjoyable. Uh, thank you so much to those guests for giving me their time to have that chat. I learned a lot, and it made me feel quite hopeful. I like hearing scientists with some positive stuff with hope and regarding climate action alright um, I will talk to you next week fuck off yurt Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.